Uh, hey, I want to start uh, a sermon of series this morning called A Reason to Believe. And it is a sermon series on the defense of the Christian faith. Uh, not only will I be doing this for a number of weeks on Sunday morning, but I will also tie in my uh, daily devotionals Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 12.05. I will give little snippets because there is so much material that I want to share more with you. So if you haven't been look, watching those, uh, you can get some more of this, uh, whether you can watch it live or not, or watch it later in the day. The technical term of these sermons, these are sermons on apologetics. And when we use the word apologetics, we generally mean I'm apologizing for something I've done wrong. But the classical definition of apologetics means a defense, uh, a reasoned, rational defense uh, of something, and in this case, of the Christian faith. Here's the reason why I preach these sermons and why I believe it is so critical. Because we live in a culture that is more and more antagonistic to the Christian faith. Once a culture that was at maybe nominally Christian, maybe supportive of Christianity, maybe there was a time that it became somewhat ambivalent, but I believe there is a tipping point that we are living in in which our culture is turning to a worldview that is antagonistic to the Christian faith. And many times in the midst of that antagonism, there are rational, reasonable, scientific, rational, reasonable, or scientific roadblocks to say this is why we do not believe that Christianity is true. And I wanted to address that uh, in these series of sermons and to begin this morning just to lay evidence out. For us, uh, to come to the place in our lives as Christians that we know that our faith is not simply blind faith that we just, oh, I believe that in my heart. And so, you know, it it's, it's doesn't have anything to do with science or reason or rationality or anything. It's just something I believe in my heart. To come to the place where we understand that we really stand on two feet in Christianity and it is our, in our hearts and it is in our minds. And if you think about this, if God is God, as we purport Him to be, and that He has revealed Himself in the Scripture and ultimately in His Son Jesus, and that Jesus literally walked this earth, was actually uh, killed on a Roman cross, was buried, and historically, in reality, was raised from the dead and appeared to the apostles and ascended to the Father, and now reigns, if that is who God is and that is true, then let me tell you as Christians, we have nothing to fear from science or reason or rationality because our God is the one who established the world like that. Now, there is a worldview behind much of science today, and we will talk about that uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, 
In Matthew's account in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Um, my, my prayer as your pastor is that our faith, our belief in Jesus would not be something we would just hold in our hearts, but would also be something we would hold in our minds so that we would stand on two feet of our minds and our hearts established in Christ. And I'm afraid many times we stand just with one foot with, oh, I believe in Jesus in my heart, and how easy it is to topple someone who stands on one foot, but much more difficult to topple someone who stands on two feet, that my faith, my trust in Christ is based not only on a hard experience, but also that it is based in reality of rationality and reason. And so in the weeks to come, I will ask you to use your minds. I know that's a lot for your pastor to ask of you. And some of you are going to go, well, no, I don't, I don't have to have that. But let me tell you, not only do you need it for your own spiritual strength, but you need it in the culture that we are facing today and will encourage a, a, a culture that in the days to come will become, I believe, will become increasingly more antagonistic to the Christian faith, and they will throw up scientific, rational defenses of why Christianity cannot be true. But this morning, I I don't want to take. I don't want to start on the theoretical side. There'll be a lot of that in the days to come. I want to talk on the personal side. Because the defense of the gospel is not just a theoretical exercise. But it's personal. It's personal to our lives. It's personal to the lives of those that we encounter on a daily basis. And this morning I want to simply tell the stories of four men who came to faith in Christ, down the road of reason. And so I'm just going to tell four stories this morning. Um, sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Each of these men are intellects in their own right. Uh, the first one is a man that... Uh, I've always called Augustine, but it is, it is current pronunciation. <laughs> it's Augustine. Um, Michelle, he becomes such a great man that they begin to name towns after this saint, Augustine, okay, in our own area. If you go, well, who is, who is Augustine? Well, they name cities after him. Uh, Augustine becomes the dominant thinker, theologian, and writer for over a thousand years in church history. His, his words, his theology dominates. Augustine was a great intellect in his own right, but he was not a Christian in his, in his early days. 
Augustine writes, I don't have a copy of it, but he writes his story of coming to faith in a book called Confessions. My confession is I haven't read it, okay? I haven't read Confessions, okay? Um, but if you're wanting to research that, Augustine's, Augustine's story is contained in Confessions. Uh, and it describes his spiritual journey. Uh, Augustine was born in North Africa in the year 354. 354, the fourth century. He had a pagan father, a Christian mother. He came from a working class family. He was sent off to school. Uh, it was a classical, secular, pagan education. As a teenager, Augustine falls into sexual promiscuity that would characterize, characterize his life for about 15 years. Uh, it was an addiction. He even has a child out of wedlock. Um, in the midst of this, he is searching for the meaning of life, what life is really about. He had already dismissed Christianity in this time frame in his life as he studies and he searches and quite honestly the word he would use is his heart was restless he was searching he, he, he turned to Greek philosophy uh, later he turned to a pagan cult eventually ends up in skepticism each one of these in the end did not satisfy his intellect and he becomes disillusioned um, in the midst of this, in his education, he becomes a professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy. He's quite accomplished in his own uh, accolades in those days. And he is introduced to uh, another saint, uh, who was a saint already at the time, named Ambr Ambrose. St. Ambrose, who is the pastor of the church in Milan, who is known for his oratory, and because Augustine is a professor of rhetoric, he is drawn to come and to listen to Ambrose's uh, sermons and to hear his oratory, and in the midst of those years, he is drawn to Christianity, and he, uh, talks with several men and, and goes through the rational understanding of what Christianity is all about. And there is a step in Augustine's life in which he first makes, and don't be offended by this term, he makes an intellectual conversion. After his searching for a worldview, a philo philosophical system that he believed was true, he comes to the place first in his mind to say, I believe that Christianity is true, what I would call a, an intellectual conversion. But in the midst of that, he encounters a holy God who exposes the sin in his life. And even though in his own physical uh, strength he has pursued spiritual purity, he cannot control himself. And he is convicted of his lust, his ambition, his intellectual pride. Until one day he comes to a place of crying out to God in an outdoor setting in a garden as he describes it. And as he is pouring out his heart to God, he hears the voice of a little child in an adjacent garden 
who is singing or chanting a little song that says, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. 32 years of age, Augustine believes it is a word from God that tells him to pick up the Scripture and to begin to read. And Augustine on that afternoon comes to the book of Romans. And as he reads through Romans, he comes to Romans 13, 13, and 14. And this is what the Scripture says. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And as Augustine reads that scripture, God does a work in his heart that he could not do himself. And he makes a choice in the midst of that movement of God instead of him trying to fix his life to lay his life before God and to surrender. Augustine is 32 years of age and in that experience he felt his heart flooded with light and in that moment he turns from his sin. There is a famous prayer that Augustine writes later and this is what his prayer said. You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine, after years of a mental pursuit, has an intellectual conversion but at 32 years, 32 years of age, has a heart conversion in which God comes and takes over his life and does such a work in his life that we name East Texas Towns after it, after him, and his theology and writings that came later, the institutes, dominate church theology and history for over a thousand years and are still read today. The second man whose story I want to tell in length, and some of these stories will get shorter, <laughs> and, and we're going to get more recent, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, and I don't have a copy of this, and I've only read ep excerpts of it. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book on uh, his uh, conversion experience is called Surprised by joy. Surprised by joy. Uh, my confession also is that I've only read excerpts of that. Um, surprised by joy is C.S. Lewis's story of how he came to faith down a rational road. Uh, C.S. Lewis is uh, born in England. He's a proper Brit, Byron, uh, born in 1898 into a nominal Christian family. 
even as a, at a young age, C.S. Lewis, as a little boy, has, it's, it's obviously he has a brilliant mind. There is an experience from childhood that C.S. Lewis book, looks back on in his book, Surprised by Joy. And it was this scene. His older brother, uh, Warney, has made on the top of a biscuit tin. Whew. This is many years ago. A miniature garden of little twigs and moss and little miniature animals. Just his own little world in this little, on the top of this little biscuit tin. And C.S. Lewis says as a little boy when his brother showed him that, he said there was something, there was something that came into his heart. Later he would describe as joy that he could not explain where... Why, when he looked at that little garden, was his heart almost something otherworldly that welled up inside of him? And for just a moment, there was this light of joy that then passed. It was, it was an episode that he, he goes back to, to think. Uh, C.S. Lewis thinks much deeper than most of us, okay, even as a little boy. Uh, but C.S. Lewis's mother dies before his 10th birthday. And he concludes that God could not be real because God would not allow his mother to be taken. As an older teenager, uh, C.S. Lewis goes into World War I with the British forces, uh, I believe in France. And he experiences the horror of that war. And when C.S. Lewis comes home as a, as a young, college-age young man, he is an avowed atheist. He believes there, is only, there could only be a material world. There cannot be a supernatural world. Eventually, um, obviously, as a brilliant mind, he becomes professor of medieval literature at Oxford, one of the colleges at Oxford. He believes that religions, all religions, are based on myths. They are man's inventions. It's true not only for the pagan religions that many of those he would study, but also for Christianity, based on a myth, simply the invention of man's imagination. Uh, he is confronted with um, other Christian professors. I'm sorry, Christian some. Christian professors and their writings, not that he's a professor, but one of the men, Christian men that he reads is G.K. Chesterton in this time in his life. What C.S. Lewis says, in these years, God began to move in on him, and some of it was through the books that he read. Uh, but he knew inside of himself that he was holding something at bay. There was something he was resisting. There was this longing inside of him that he could not satisfy. And he knew that there was something, but he also knew there was a resistance in his own heart. He describes at 31 years of age in 1929 of taking a bus ride uh, into town. And he is contemplating, understand, C.S. Lewis thinks a little deeper, his river runs a little deeper than ours, okay? He is contemplating the concept of the absolute in the universe, whether there is an absolute. And he is struggling with these, these Christian ideas that he's been exposed to by uh, Christian faculty members and also uh, the writings, particularly of Chesterton. 
And he says as he started that bus ride that day that he believed there was no God, but by the time he got off the bus, he had come to the rational decision to believe that there was a God. He believed in that moment that there was a choice inside of his heart, somehow that he was, he was offered this opportunity to believe that there was something greater than this world, and he felt that there was a resistance, but he took the volitional choice in that bus ride to say, I choose to believe there is something more than the material world. And at the end of the bus ride, uh, C.S. Lewis have, has moved from being an atheist to a theist, which is simply the belief that there is some kind of God, but it is not a personal God. He struggles with this idea and the ramifications of there being a supreme being who he understands has to be a moral being. And he becomes convicted of his sin, his lust, ambitions, fears, hatreds. For C.S. Lewis, it comes to a, to a head uh, in the fall of 1931. He's 32 years of age. Discussions one night with uh, two professors, one of them being Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. They're discussing the concept of myths in the ancient mythological <laughs> Uh, stories and religions of the pagans. Uh, and they were talking about this consistent story of the myths of the God who came to earth and then died and then rose again. And that night they talked more and more about this myth. And Tolkien finally, on a walk outside along a creek at, at Oxford, he proposes to C.S. Lewis, is it possible rationally that the reason that this kind of story laces through all these mythological stories is that is it possible that there is truth behind it and is it possible that there was once at least where the myth became real and God came and died and rose again in the midst of their walk <laughs> I believe at this moment there is a sudden unexpected, unexplainable rush of wind that came and made them stop and wonder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all that night, C.S. Lewis struggles with this idea. Is the story of Jesus real? Is it rooted in reality and in history? And he thinks critically of Jesus. Days later, he takes a trip, uh, another trip. He's thinking. His brother Warney is dry, riding a motorcycle, driving a motorcycle. C.S. Lewis, picture this, is in the sidecar. They're going to the zoo to have a picnic. And C.S. Lewis, as he thought about those conversations, he comes to the place in his life. Well, let me say this. It's not really that he came to the place. He said there was something in the midst of that ride to the zoo that overcame him to convince him that Christianity was not only true here, 
but was also true here. And C.S. Lewis says that he surrenders his heart to Christ and his experience to describe that. He is surprised by joy. He found the source of joy that was out there that he had sensed as a child. September 28th of 1931, 32 years of age, C.S. Lewis. His heart is surprised by joy. And he becomes one of the most prolific Christian writers of the last century and the preeminent apologist in Christianity of the last hundred years, C.S. Lewis. Oh, we must move on. The third person. I may not get to the fourth this morning. I'll share the fourth this week when we, we have our devotionals. Uh, the third one is Josh McDowell, more than a carpenter. This is one of those books that says over 15 million in print. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people. More than a carpenter. Josh McDowell. Uh... Josh McDowell is wounded as a boy by an alcoholic father. As a teenager, he is looking for answers the most basic, to the most basic questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? As a teenager, he attends church, but it doesn't work for him. Later, he tries the academic track but he finds no answers that satisfy his mind he becomes involved in partying but that also becomes a meaning, meaningless cycle he finds no ultimate meaning in that until as a college student a young college student he he encounters a small group of Christian believers on campus who in time challenge him to examine the claims of Jesus that he was the Son of God, God who came in the flesh, who died on a cross, who was buried, who rose again and is alive today, and he can change your life. C.S., I'm sorry, Josh McDowell scoffs at them, and he sets out to prove that they are wrong. He actually dropped out of college. To study. He believed that it was just a myth, and if you did the rational, reasonable, reasoned uh, study of it, you would find that there was nothing behind Christianity or the stories about Jesus. And so he went into to study about the reliability of the Bible, uh, the, the deity of Jesus, the historicity of the resurrection, uh, the conversion of Paul or Saul of Tarsus and the Old Testament prophecies. Months went by as Josh McDowell studied to determine why this could not be rationally believed. Only to come to the place, the one who sought to disprove it, until he came, and it's detailed in his book, More Than a Carpenter, to reach the only conclusion his rational mind could reach that the Bible was true that Jesus was who he said he was and not only did he die but he was raised from the dead and he reigns today and his mind was convinced 
But at that point, his, his heart is unmoved because he realizes <laughs> uh, what his persona on his college campus was and what it would take for him to admit <laughs> that those he had sought to disprove for him to lose face and to say, no, it is true. And so there were some days in there. But December 19th, 1959, Josh McDowell says, 8.30 that night. After intellectually having to acknowledge that it was true, surrenders his heart and his life is changed. Quite honestly, uh, I would say in my generation, the most popular apologist would be Josh McDowell. Um, let me tell this last story very quickly because I think for those that are a little bit younger than me, then the name Lee Strobel uh, is very significant. He writes The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel, let me just tell this real quickly, is an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He is an avowed atheist. He believed that Christianity was a product of wishful thinking based on ancient mythology and primitive superstition. His world is rocked in the fall of 1979 when his wife announces to him one night at home that she has become a Christian. Lee Strobel thinks she's insane and she needs to be talked into her senses. And as an investigative reporter, he begins to establish a case that he can set before his wife to show her how this cannot be true and she has been deceived. 21 months as an investigative reporter going to the sources to determine uh, what do we know about the Bible, about the life of Jesus, studying evidence from history, science, philosophy, psychology investigating, laying out a case, an investigative case to prove to his wife that Jesus cannot, this whole Jesus thing cannot be true. Only 21 months later, to come to the place, November 8th of 1981, the only clear conclusion after a skeptic's investigation into the claims of Christianity to discover that the evidence was clear that Jesus was who he said he was. And that night he makes more than an intellectual decision. He makes a heart decision and he prays and gives his life to Jesus. And Lee Strobel writes, there's a number of these books, A Case for Christ, A Case for Easter, A Case for the Resurrection, East, uh, Easter is Resurrection, Christmas. Um, you can, you can Google those. They sell them on Amazon. Um, four stories I've told you this morning. Let me be intellectually honest with you this morning. None of those stories prove that Christianity is true. I just began to lay before you evidence that we must deal with 
to determine whether we have rational, reason, reasonable evidence that, the, that God is God, that the Bible is true, and Jesus is who He said He is, and He is the only way of salvation. Now, here's the thing this morning as I conclude. Uh, most of our stories, whether you're here in person or you're on the live stream, did not come to Jesus down a rational road. Most of us, I would dare say, came to faith in Christ as a heart decision. But let me tell you what I believe happens then. Because we've made a heart decision, many of us, most of us, did not go back and to say, I have a reason to believe this in a rational sense. And many of you are sitting there going, well, Brother Darrell, I don't need to know all this. And I would say, no, yes, you do. Because the strongest faith is a faith that is based not only in our hearts, but also based in our heads. And my challenge to you in the weeks to come is that you would open up your mind. Many of you who came to faith in a hard experience, and all of us had to come to that place. And to say, no, I, I have a reason to believe that my faith is not just in my heart, but it is also in my head. And I ask you to think through your faith. And I want to close with this. Uh, the scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. And Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Amen. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I believe we're challenged as Christians to have a rational, reasonable, even scientific defense of our faith. That if God is God, then no, our, our faith will line up with reality. It's, it's the last two words that I want to leave us with, and then I'm going to pray. I want us to do it with a spirit of meekness and fear. Understanding we do not have all the answers. And that we must approach God with a sense of awe. And understanding that even... If we convince somebody intellectually of the truth of the gospel, that God must do a work in their hearts for them to come to faith in Christ. So let me pray this morning. Father, today we thank you for uh, just your reality. And Father, I pray that you would help us to open up our minds and to think uh, about our faith and be convinced of it, Father, that you would give us, you would establish our faith in our hearts and in our heads, Father, in the weeks to come. And you would use us in a world that, Father, needs to hear this, uh, Father, in an effective way, and that you would move on people's hearts, Father. And so we love you, we thank you for loving us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.